And welcome to episode 70 of Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. Ah, Greg's not here this time. He is currently stuck behind the great firewall of China and is unable to get on board with this podcast. But that's all right, because I managed to line up a very exciting interview for you. So, without any further ado, adieu, adieu. Adieu. Without any further ado, the French girl tells me. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Brendan Griffin, postdoctoral fellow from the Kavli Institute of Astrophysics and Space Research. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Excellent. You are from MIT. That's correct. In okay. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Right. So that's what the M stands for. Yeah, the big M. I don't really know a lot about MIT. I sort of I hear about it in movies and online, and it seems like some sort of magical place where all the really cool science is happening. As far as I've been able to figure out, if a time machine is ever invented, it will be at MIT. Is that about right? Is that the tone? Yeah, it's fairly accurate. I'm not sure whether the time machine will come out of MIT, but I mean, there certainly are people working towards that, without a doubt. Yeah, it's at the forefront of engineering, computer science, brain science, cancer research, like the human gene, a lot of the human genome was mapped here, robotics. Anything to do with technology, chances are MIT has a field or a group of people working on it, and if not, some of the best in the world working on it. Now, your part of the world has a whole bunch of universities or colleges there, don't they? That's right, yeah. We're in Cambridge, the suburb, but we often, to people that aren't familiar with Cambridge, we said we just say Boston. But, uh, yeah, you're right. There's there's tons and tons of universities. I lost track of how many actually more than and 20. Yeah, there's lots of people. So if you can't find anyone at MIT doing what you're interested in, you can just like go down the road to Harvard, which is two subway stops away, and ask someone there or Tufts University or Boston University. The list goes on. Wow. So there's just a glut of them in one little chunk of the country. Yeah, that's right. And it makes for interesting nightlife and things like that as well, because 50% of everyone in this side of the river are actually under the age of 30. And so, yeah, it's a really young crowd, a book town, lots of students. A lot of graffiti. And people yeah, listening to some of that hipping, hopping music. Uh, yeah, don't trust a lot of them. musicians and a lot of musicians, a lot of artists. Yeah, so it's a really nice place to live, actually. Overall, all right. So, is MIT strictly focused towards the science type stuff? I, I know that colleges there tend to have a big sporting thing. So, is MIT sort of is their sports? Basically, what I want to know is: uh, is your college football team going to be all robot in a couple of years? Yeah. Is it just nerds with, like, super uh, Robocop armor on or are there there, there bona fide football players that are all-stars? Well, the answer is MIT does have a massive wide range of sporting facilities and sporting teams and things like that, and you can get involved with that. As a postdoc, I'm sort of not a student, so that's more like the students get involved with that sort of thing. But to answer your question about robotics, football teams and things like that, there are groups working on 
robots that will play sport. There is an like a global effort to make a soccer team, I think, by 2050, completely robotic that will play in the World Cup. And I'm sure people at MIT are working towards that as well. But that's not exactly my area, but I know that there are people working towards that kind of thing. That's the day that the sport officially becomes very dull. Yeah, that's the singularity. And then Skynet <laughs> takes, takes over and we all get soccer balls kicked in our faces by Terminators. Yeah, yes, I'm not sure what will happen. There's basically two comment, robot commentators and they go, oh, well, if this team was playing this game... Brrr. The winner would be this by two points. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they'll just like download software in real time to like the, the forwards and the backs and the goalkeeper and have completely dynamic. Yeah, it'll be like artificial intelligence. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a scary future, but an interesting one. A scary future ruled by jock robots. Yeah, that's right. I mean, nerds already kind of rule the world anyway. We're talking through a computer and telephones and things like that. It's just an extension of that. But then the creation might come back to bite them. You know, who true, knows? True, but, but sci-fi, I, I, sci-fi has a better idea of that. I am bench pressing 220 at the moment. So it's a little of column A and a little of column B. Yeah. <laughs> that's true yeah like, i don't think uh, any robots can, can do that yet unless yeah you go to uh tacos and things like that but they don't count yeah well it depends whether you're in a fight with one or not yeah i don't want to be in a fight with the backo <laughs> it's not a challenge so what is the Kavli Institute of Astrophysics and Space Research? So a lot of MIT's institutes are actually founded by philanthropists. And so MIT has some money and then a wealthy individual or an alumna, alumnus of MIT comes to MIT and says, I want to donate X amount of dollars. And they name a building after them in exchange for like their donation. And Covley is named after Fred Covley, mm-hmm. who is a wealthy philanthropist. He actually passed away recently. But his legacy continues through the various researchers at the Kubli Institute. So it is on the main campus of MIT, but like many other facilities like the Draper Lab, the Lincoln Laboratory, they all have philanthropic names or famous engineers that they're named after. But it is primarily for astrophysics and space research. So on various floors, they'll have designing spacesuits. On other floors, they'll be designing satellites. And on other floors, they'll be doing galactic research, you know, black holes and dark matter and things like that. So wow. it's really The last time really I dynamic. went to a science room, all we were doing is potato batteries. You're actually yeah, designing no. <laughs> spacesuits in there. Yeah, yeah, they're designing amazing spacesuits. That's on the first floor, if you ever come to MIT at the Kubli Institute. And then, yeah, various floors. It's just like choose your own adventure, really, like a Goosebumps novel. You can just get, get off at any floor you like and just go and knock on people's doors. People are really friendly and willing to talk about their research because, you know, they spend most of their waking life thinking about this sort of stuff and they're more than happy to help people out or just if you're interested send them an email look up the couple institute and if you find a topic of interest just send them an email i'm more Ooh, than happy to help out that sounds fantastic yeah. so that's not an open that's not an open invite to like send your crazy theories about the uh, origin <laughs> of the universe and things like that because we do get plenty of those at coffee we'll often sort of look down at the table and there'll be a new book there and no one really knows where it comes from but it's a book about living inside a donut inside a unicorn's eyeball or something, you know, like there's some really weird stuff going on. I'm I'm pretty sure you have a well-educated audience, so they're more than welcome to send emails in. So the people who are working on, say, the spacesuit, is that, are those university students being involved in that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's right. So there's undergraduates who do uh, like summer internships with them, with the postgraduate researchers who are PhD students or and then the postdoctoral researchers such as myself or other people in my position. Yeah, from the professorial level all the way down to the undergraduates, there's really immersive kind of culture at MIT of just getting hands-on experience at a really young age, which is something I didn't have much of at uh, 
my university in Australia. All right. So is the is the sort of the end game that some guy in a big black coat and a big hat sort of meets you out the the front of the university and is like, "Hey, kid, I'm from NASA." I hear you working on a, uh, a nice-looking flight suit there. <laughs> well, interestingly, there are people that walk around that look like that, actually. Sometimes there's, there's certain buses. Like, I, I got onto the wrong bus one day and was going to, like, the defense laboratory where, like, they make missiles and things like Tomahawk missiles. And, and he was, like, the bus driver. Look, the bus driver looked like Agent Smith out of the Matrix and kind of <laughs> dead, and said, do you, do you have ID? And I was very scared and... I was definitely on the wrong bus. I was just looking to go home. But, yeah, there are people that do look like these Agent Smith types walking around, but, yeah, usually they're bus drivers. <laughs> they're trying to be a bit beyond their station. Yeah, exactly right. But our, our, we don't do any, at least in what I do, military funding or any DOD kind of stuff. Yeah, it's all happy days, pie-in-the-sky research about, you know, the origin of the universe and galaxies and planets and things like that. Oh, okay. So, so your lab specifically, what sort of fun toys do you have access to? As astronomers, we get access to the biggest set of binoculars. And you actually mentioned time machines before, and I don't want to be too poetic, but they are effectively time machines because when you look out into the vast expanse of the universe, it takes time for light to travel from distant galaxies to the collecting surface of a telescope and then down into an instrument and onto your hard drive. So in that regard, we get access to all sorts of satellites which are orbiting the Earth and out there in space, as well as our ground-based telescopes, which are in, I guess you would say, exotic locations in like Hawaii and Chile scattered all around the world at mountaintops, which observational astronomers at least get to go and visit from time to time. That's on the observational side, so on the mm -hmm. theoretical side. If you're crunching numbers like I am, you, you can't really run huge simulations of the universe on a 386. You need to <laughs> have huge numbers of parallel processes so we get access to some of the fastest supercomputers in the world. And, um, Hello, crisis yeah, so two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They run my spreadsheets so well, trust me. Because <laughs> <laughs> your average laptop has about four CPU cores, they're called, and we use of order 4,000 cores per simulation. So, um, obviously, if I tried to run that simulation on my laptop, it would just start crying. And so it seems like normal speed on your supercomputer. Do you run any programs on there where you're just like, this is what it's all about, this happens in a heartbeat, <laughs> what would happen, would, would, would take a is on a laptop it's not something where you like click on a desktop and then you like run yeah crisis or something like that and be like oh the graphics are like virtual reality it's so <laughs> amazing they're all interesting that they're all tools that are built purposefully for those scales so i mean for instance they just recently published a simulation called the illustrious simulation which was said to be the most detailed simulation of the universe ever and that ran for three months on a supercomputer and that would have taken two thousand years on a laptop Oh, wow. So it gives you a sense of, like, the scale of these computers and, and the complexity of the simulation. So just that's just to give you an idea. Like, we could never do the things we dream of on just, like, your average MacBook Pro kind of thing. <laughs> so what sort of things have you been discovering? What's, what's coming out of your labs? So there's all different sorts of areas. People are studying exoplanets, for instance. So uh, we yep. found, found thousands of planets now outside our solar system. So there's groups at, on the, at the Kavli Institute that are working towards confirming these candidates and finding interesting relationships between the host star of those systems and the planetary systems. It always orbit. freaks me out the way that you detect those things. I, I think it's been described right, right. to me in the past as a moth about a mile away from a lighthouse, circling the lighthouse, and you figure out that the moth's there based on how much the lighthouse is swaying back and forth. 
Exactly. It's it's a fractional. Yeah, it's a fraction of the total light that dips. So yeah, you're talking about the transit method. So that's effectively what you just described, right? You have some distant lighthouse, which is like a star, mm-hmm. and then you have a, a giant. A, well, a moth just goes just drifts in in front of the uh, lighthouse, and you're miles away and can detect the dip in that light in, through your computer, uh, through the telescope, and yeah, from that just tiny little dip, you can measure which direction the planet's going, the, the planet's mass, the planet's density density, the planet's orbital period, all sorts of interesting parameters just from like that dip in the light. How do you um, how do you measure its mass based on how much the light is blocked? It's a bit of mathematics, but you can use like the ratio of what you would expect. So when the planet goes behind it, you can use like basically a, a series of ratios to determine the mass. Yeah, I sort of need a pen and paper to jot it down, but it's effectively a, a ratios game that you play to infer a, a mass or at least an orbital period. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's also so that's not just for the properties of that planet. You can also get uh, things like uh, orbital information as well, like whether there's another planet in the system. Because if it was just a nice, clean system, like one star and one planet going around it, if you see the planet wobble in some way, then it suggests that there's another system, like another planet that you're not detecting. Mm. So a cat and mouse, really interesting cat and mouse game going on in exoplanet uh, research to find, the main goal is to find a terrestrial-like planet that's habitable and uh, can sustain life. That's the ultimate goal. I think a lot of a lot of my colleagues that are in that area would really love to find that planet that is like Earth, effectively outside our own solar system. Because as we know, you know, its life is only unique to our our planet, and it'd be revolutionary if we find life on other planets uh, outside our own. Because then we can go and mine it for resources. That's right. Yeah, Elon Musk and friends will send a spacecraft there to put it into a big par- parachute. Bring it back. All of the good creatures will be extinct in the next 40 years. We've got to find another planet full of other creatures to hunt. That's right, yeah. Well, I mean, with any luck uh, in our lifespan, I'm not sure how old you are, but... I'm pretty I'm sure. I'm very really young. Like, I'm surprisingly yeah, young. young. Yeah, yeah, dangerously young, some would say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, we would end up uh, probably on Mars within our lifespan, I would say, the first humans to land on Mars. With the development of commercialized space flight, yeah, I really do think that we're going to land on Mars and colonize Mars in our lifespan. Whether we should or not, we often have discussions at coffee and at work whether we, sh- we should colonize Mars. You know, Why wouldn't um, we want to? There's an interesting set of circumstances. I guess a, a lot of people use an argument that is akin to, well, we have a lot of problems here on Earth. Why should why should we invest billions of dollars in investing into space research when we could spend it on help, you know saving the homeless and foreign aid and things like that? But mm-hmm. that's a bit of a false that's a bit of a false dichotomy in that just because you're not spending it on on going to Mars, it doesn't mean that that money is going to be reinvested into you know, ethical and moral outcomes. Um, another reason is is that if you look at the exploration of planet Earth throughout history, so the Europeans going out and discovering America and Australia and things like that, although they were noble enterprises and we have this kind of adventure, we embellish it and we say there was an adventurous spirit about that, it really, a lot of it was an economic incentive. So in South America, the Spanish wanted like gold and things like that. And in Europe, there was land to be had and rich resources. And in Australia, similarly. So, and a lot of sand. Indeed, like, yeah, they, exactly. And when the British wanted a lot of sand and they found it. Yeah, exactly. Lots of kangaroos and, uh, yeah, we, I don't know. Our rabbits just aren't big enough and they don't have enough pockets. Send yeah, that yeah, Cook yeah. fellow out. And interestingly, you mentioned Cook. Like he went to Hawaii to do the transit of Venus, and it was an astronomical mission to begin with. And he had sealed orders from the Crown not to open the orders until he got there. And he went. He went to uh, Tahiti, I think it was. Did the measurement, 
And uh, then he opened his secret orders and, and they said to continue on to the southern lands, you know, Terra Australis. And then he went on and to, the, to find uh, 1770 and things like that. So a lot of the time... Yeah, it is for economic benefit. And and so back to the original question, which was like, why don't we colonize Mars? Well, there there is economic benefit to be had, but it, it won't be realized within a single human lifespan. So if a, if a group of governments got together and wanted to put money towards it, they wouldn't reap the benefits within probably their lifespan. Whereas going to South America, you would get heaps of gold, like Philip, Philip II or whoever it was at the time, got heaps of gold and he would become you know, wealthy beyond measure. Mm. But there's no, there's no similar, because it takes like six months to get to Mars and whatever you're doing there. I mean, we're miles away from being able to mine Mars and, and we don't really have an understanding of what's beneath the surface of Mars in any great detail. So it could be gold. On top yeah, of all those, knows, on, yeah. those brown rocks that all the scientists are very excited to see, there could be just gold. Yeah, for a large block of cheese, Charlesburg <laughs> cheese. We, we yeah, so who knows? I'm neither here nor there. I feel like humans will end up doing it regardless. I can have these discussions, but... I feel like humans, in the end, will explore whether we should or shouldn't. I don't know. That's, I'll leave that to the philosophers. <laughs> you're an engineer, and by God, if you, you can do it, you're going to figure out how to do it. Yeah, we just get the jo- get the job done, I guess. So, so long as we're not hurting anyone on the way, that's that's the main goal. Neat. Uh, do you have a, a like a, a specialty thing that you search for, being that you're a number cruncher, or do they just you just deal with numbers and? I just sit in a sit in a dark corner and with an abacus, and they feed me mushrooms all day. <laughs> yeah. no, they, um, no, I have set goals that I want to achieve at MIT and things as part of my research program. So my specialty, I guess you would say, is computational galaxy formation. So I run huge computational simulations simulating the formation of the universe and the dark matter within the universe and also try to model how stars form, how stars form within dark matter. Oh, and wow. we can talk. We can, we can talk more on that in just a moment. But uh, yeah, so I study star how star clusters form, which are really like tens of millions of stars forming in like a big group together. I also study how the Milky Way forms. So where's the origin of our own Milky Way galaxy? Because even though we've got iPhones and like, monster trucks and stuff like that, we still don't know where like our galaxy came from and and then the universe. And, um, but yeah, it does keep me on that. That's for sure. That's the short answer. Wow. So if you've got a patch of dark matter. Can a star come out of that? So, yeah. So in order to understand dark matter and things like that, the way I break it down is to just say you have the most delicious cake in front of you and you have all right, no idea. All right. I'm all, okay, I'm on board. You'll probably end up hating me for describing it this way after I describe it. But effectively, you have this delicious cake in front of you and you want to know how to make it yourself. So we, know, we have some idea that when we taste a cake that, you know, it might have a sweet taste, has some butter, some sugar, maybe some flour. We know some properties about some of the ingredients in a cake, like how soda makes it rise and things like this. And effectively, the universe works in the same way. And, and we have no way to run the clock backwards with a cake. We can't just put it in some machine and run it backwards and see, it. you know, the eggs reform and, and the flour go back into the crops, into the wheat crops and things like that. But what we can do with the universe is we can go out and measure properties of the cake or the universe and we can rewind the clock in these supercomputers, in these simulations. And uh, from heaps and heaps of different studies by people much smarter than me, we now know the makeup of the universe roughly. We know that it's roughly 20% dark matter and 70% dark energy, and the rest is sort of what, what we can see in the night sky, what you and I are made of, and, and the cake itself kind of thing. So what I mean by uh, dark matter, dark matter is the glue that stars and galaxies form within. Okay. They're kind of like, like a trampoline. Yeah, you hear, I often 
hear news articles and read news articles and hear radio explanations of what exactly dark matter is and they all fall short so the only the only analogy i can use is just like glue or like uh the ocean so the ocean is kind of like invisible dark matter and everything we can see are like the ships on top of the ocean and in certain right. areas, so we, without the without, without the ocean, the ships would just yeah. Fall. But without the, yeah, just say we couldn't see the ocean. So just say like we were fish, right? Fish don't know they're in water. Right. But they can see the hull of different of ships all around the ocean. Okay. So it's it's kind of like that. Like we're like we can't see dark matter because it doesn't interact with us. Like through uh, light, mm-hmm. we can't see it. We can't we can't reach out. I mean, it it is everywhere. But yeah, we can't look at look at it through our telescopes. What we can do is only see its effects on other things, kind of like the ocean and the boats. So we can use telescopes to measure its effects and its properties and things like that. And we basically come up with a handful of numbers, key critical numbers, describe the properties of the universe. And we can feed that into a supercomputer at very early times at the start of the universe. And basically, you just solve a series of equations, just do a bunch of number crunching. You could do it by hand, but it'd take you a very long time. <laughs> but you, you just evolve it in time, and it just takes it's like taking photographs, like from when you're born through to when you are an, an old man, and you effectively just get you get these photographs put out on your computer. And you can, at each time, you you have a snapshot of the universe, a photograph as it grows up as a child. Um, and okay, then into okay. An, so into if, an adult. if, if yeah, I get this right, I'm a fish with a camera. I'm looking at the <laughs> I'm looking at the surface of the ocean, yeah. and but all I can see are the hulls of the ships that are moving very very slowly. So I use the camera to figure out how the ships' hulls are moving in relation to each other and myself. And yeah, that's right. the dark matter is the ocean. Is the dark energy the currents of the ocean? <laughs> this is the trouble with analogies. You, <laughs> it, it, it works. It works to like ten percent. Like it works to so, get you so far, and then like to describe the rest, you're totally dead. So to to describe dark energy, it's effectively like the the bowl that the ocean's sitting in, I guess you could say, and and that bowl is kind of stretching over time. So dark matter is actually like a, a particle, we think, okay. that exists within within the universe. But dark energy is like and like if you think of pressure, right? Like you know, yeah, um, in your ti- in your tires or something like that. It's it's a, it acts as a negative pressure. So effectively, it pulls it pulls space further and further apart. Get and the hell causes, out! What? So it causes not- the ex- expansion of the universe, and dark matter sits within that space. Wait, so dark matter is outside of the universe and it sucks the universe outwards. Yeah, so dark matter is the inside. Sorry, dark energy. Dark energy and dark matter are all within the universe, but one causes the expansion of space, but the other one causes the formation of galaxies. So one one acts to, one acts inwards in, inwardly, like through gravity, mm-hmm. which is dark matter, but the other the other one acts outwardly through like a negative pressure. Wow. So it's a balance. It's it's about it was a, it, like in the early universe, it was a balance of those kind of forces: the force of gravity versus uh, dark energy. So you, you might have seen photos or read the news, science news, where like Andromeda, our nearest neighbor galaxy, is actually approaching towards us, and uh, mm-hmm. that's because gra- that's because gravity has won out the battle. So earlier on, when the when the Andromeda galaxy and our galaxy were forming, dark energy was trying to push them apart, but because they were so big and so close, gravity has taken over and is now pulling them back together. So it's the battle It's the battle of the ages, the yeah, battle of the forces. Okay. Well, there's only one little thing that I still haven't quite figured out. Sure, if, sure. If it was pressure, it would be forcing things apart, but if it was negative pressure, wouldn't it be pulling stuff together? What, what have I missed there? Oh, okay. So, okay, when I say pressure, I mean, like, 
compressible pressure. So if you were to put an egg between your hands and push inwards, mm-hmm. that's that's a positive pressure. That's a positive pressure. That I'm giving um, to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But negative pressure acts in the opposite direction. So instead of pushing down on the egg, in fact, your hands are moving further and further away from each other. Often people say it's like throwing an apple up in the air, and instead of it coming down, it just continues on up into space. It just goes in the opposite direction to what you expect. Wow. That sounds... What? Yeah, so it's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I mean, I often don't fully understand it intuitively myself, and I think there are a few people in the world that truly understand the details and the complexity of it all. And, yeah, I, I struggle, to be honest. I have a PhD in to understand it, so it's completely okay. well, I've got it now. I've got it 100%. <laughs> You've got it all sorted. Yeah. I, you should come over it. to MIT and, cool. and cool. teach us how it's all yeah. done. It's about a fish throwing an egg. I've got it. <laughs> yeah. I'm on top of yeah. it. In, in summary, yeah, if you're a fish, don't throw an egg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's super complicated. But dark, dark energy we understand less about. Uh, dark matter we actually have some idea. Like we can, we can model the way it behaves. We don't know what it is, but we can kind of work out how it behaves. It has, a very, it has very simple properties. And that's quite easy to manage for us mere humans. Whereas dark energy is, it could be Dumbledore calling the shots. Like I really, no one has, no one has any real idea what dark energy is. We're close to understanding dark matter with things like the LHC and, and particle accelerators and astrophysics as well. But dark energy, that's who knows when we'll understand what dark energy is. And uh, are those two things related? Because you you, you call them both dark, but I imagine that's just because you can't see them. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's just because we can't see them and we're really bad at names in astronomy, really boring. It's just dark because we can't see it. Okay, so they're not related to each other except that they do tend to exist in the same sort of universe doing uh, as an opposing force. Yeah, yeah, effectively. Yeah, it's just by convenience, that's what we call them, essentially. It's pretty strange stuff, that's for sure. But as for, like, harnessing it and, like, doing warp drives and things like you get in Star Trek, yeah, I think we're centuries away from doing anything like that, unfortunately, for all those Star Trek fans out there. Son of a gun. What are you guys down at MIT doing? Uh, (laughs) I know, doing the boring stuff, finding planets and simulating our own galaxy. I know, we need to be making warp drives and time machines and things like that. It's unfortunate. Oh, well, we're working on it, don't worry. And I understand that MIT has a bit of a history of uh, crazy pranks. Oh, yeah, that's right. Is that that specifically unique to MIT in that you've just got a lot of engineers who come up with uh yeah i I guess um because i'm a transplant like i'm originally from australia a lot of the history i've just kind of learned by secondhand information but yeah you're right there are pranks or hacks they're called and with other or against other universities in particular uh the california institute of technology caltech oh uh, yes i've heard about them and that's and, and they're kind of seen as the competitors to mit i guess you could say i mean we're all on the same team right we're all trying to help everyone out so but, it's a friendly you know, rivalry friendly rivalry yeah exactly like the state of origin or whatever you want to, analogy you want to draw mm-hmm. except we don't tack we don't tackle each other in the hallways unless they we do get have, robots to do, yeah, do that they do have, they do have robots yeah they do <laughs> yeah strange you bring that up they do have uh, robotics competitions where they do just that but anyway i digress the hacks they do different pranks on each other and there are a whole bunch of our uh, rules that you must abide by, like no one should be hurt and it should be in good fun. And effectively, they, they get a message, the hack group at MIT saying you've been hacked. And then there's a frantic 
Oh my goodness, what's <laughs> happened? Someone's hit the red button, and then everyone runs around trying to find what they've done. And uh, one year, actually, they they hollowed out a police car, like a scale model police car, and put it on the Great Dome. It's kind of like think of like putting a car on top of the Sydney Opera House. Like, it was a fake. It was, it was a fake. The, the number of the police car was pi. Funnily enough, <laughs> pi, the, the, the mathematical number, three point one four. Yeah, and they, they got it on top of the Great Dome with a crane, and at, at nighttime, I believe. And yeah, that that was on newspapers all around the world and things like that. Everything else has been stepped down from that. Yeah, but there's yeah, like you said, there is a hack culture at MIT and Caltech in particular. I do like the ones where where they disassemble a boat and then reassemble it inside a pool, uh, an indoor pool. Always. Oh yeah, yeah, I have read about that. Uh, yeah, to be honest, I haven't read the history of all the hacks that have occurred. I mean, you've sparked my interest again, and I should read up on it. But yeah, I'm not really a part of that. I'm a choir boy compared to some of those other guys. Oh no, yeah, no, I'm sure you're. Not a part of it. We'll go on record and say that. I would, I would never. Dr. Brendan Griffin is not a part of any of these. Uh, these right. things. Not at least I would say on here. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> so you're in a building where all you get are numbers to work with, and there are all different floors to the building. Is there anyone in particular where you're like, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to sort of sneak across to that floor and uh, spend six months. <laughs> like, up like there. To get research envy. Kind yeah. Of what am I doing with my life? I wish I was understanding how black holes rotate or something. Yeah, or like figuring out how to genetically splice tadpole DNA in with owls. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, also across campus, there's really interesting stuff going on uh, in the computer science, like artificial intelligence and things like that. Yeah, that's what's really good. How like, far have they got? Uh, uh, I guess you won't know until they release. Until it's too I mean, it's freaking late is that when we find out. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things. So someone will type in the wrong number and then that'll be it for all of us. Oh, the problem uh, is that they're putting them into these tiny quadcopters and making them swarm. Yeah, that's right. But that's, <laughs> well, I mean, oh. yeah, they're working on that. They're, they have like, I mean, often you'll see videos online of like MIT doing, um, I don't want to use the word drones because that has the kind of bad political connotations because they're, they're actually using them benefits. But yeah, I do get research envy. I'd be like, oh, it'd be really awesome if I could just fly a quadcopter all day and deliver me cheeseburgers or something. You know? <laughs> like people doing crazy, awesome cancer research. There's people unmapping the, the brain, like neurons in the brain, like connective tissue in the brain and things, like gamifying it. It's like a computer game you can play online called iWire. Oh, and wow. working, on, like, working on the software for that. So they actually, because computers can't solve that problem, they've crowdsourced a lot of it. And so they're using the wisdom of the crowds to map the human brain. So you get like these little data cubes and you like trace out neurons and things like that. And they just released a scientific paper on it. And so if you participate, you can become a collaborator on the project. Oh, wow. Astronomy has, Astronomy has a similar thing called Galaxy Zoo. Uh, oh, yes, we've, uh, we've played around with Galaxy Zoo and mentioned it on the podcast before. Yeah, so if you're interested in participating in research and things like that, check out, just Google Galaxy Zoo. And it's it's a way, because algorithms at the moment aren't really good at classifying galaxies, like what sort of galaxies, whether it has mm. like big, big stripes or big circles or, you know, it's like a galaxy like our own. So they, we use people, you know, just, you know, your average Jimmy Joe out there can classify galaxies and that really helps the scientific endeavor. So can we look at a galaxy and go, oh, that one's like our own? Yeah, you can. I mean, you can just look, you just look at it like through a, a picture, like a photograph. And yeah, it, if it has, if it's like compact, like a disc, kind of like a, a dish plate, I guess. You can also find ones that are more like footballs, like big in the middle. And then there's ones like soccer balls. So yeah, using its shape, you can learn quite a lot about a galaxy. So we so, know what our galaxy looks like. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we know our galaxy is like a disc, like 
Yeah. Just because when you look up in the night sky, I'm not sure if you can do this in Brisbane, but in other cities that don't have too much light pollution, you can see a big band, mm-hmm. uh, and that's 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 our own Milky Way. From this and accurate measurements, we know like the width of that disk now, the, the width of the pa- of the dish plate. Mm-hmm. We know how how wide it is. It's like a hundred thousand light years across. And, yeah, we're about two-thirds of the way out. So we know a bunch of properties, and there are many other galaxies like our own. It's an average run-of-the-mill galaxy, pretty much. There's nothing special about our own galaxy, to be honest. Aw, except for us. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, there's like 200 billion stars, and roughly half of those have planets, we think. It's a matter of time until we find life on another planet, I feel like. Maybe not, like, life, like, with... uh, Nightclubs and... uh... Yeah, 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 nightclubs and Star Wars sequels and things like that. I I think there's going to be, yeah, like, some, some sludge, basically, some... My, you know, microbial life and things like that. And, yeah, and we might super intelligent it. energy beasts. That yeah, that's just, right. That like uh, like the Navi out of Avatar or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Who knows, like, what we could find. Yeah, there's an interesting theory that once you get to harnessing the energy of the planet, there's a tipping point. There's different classes of civilizations. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you get to a certain point, they, they think maybe civilizations actually destroy themselves because there's a delicate balance between harnessing the, the energy of the planet and it kind of backfiring and it destroying all the life on that planet. And we can actually do that now, right, with the development of nuclear weapons and things. And we've been close, you know, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and mm. things like that. Like, and it's going to happen more and more in the future where we'll, we'll be on a fine line between potentially being multiplanetary going to Mars or potentially destroying all life on planet on the planet Earth. We haven't seen other planets. One theory is because all civilizations eventually end up destroying themselves. Yeah, so, who, so who knows? Because the galaxy has been around for 9 billion years, roughly, and intelligent life, modern man's only been around like 200,000 years. And so you need to, you need to have like an intersection mm. of, like, of intelligent life rising up and being able to go out and explore the stars, but also have other other civilizations do it at the exact same time. So um, at the moment, it's just a whole bunch of nothing with every couple of minutes, a tiny fraction of a second blink on and off. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like clicking. Like if you just click, that's when like an intelligent civilization, right, like it comes into existence, but then it disappears before the other click happens. And then they just they just completely miss each other. So you need two clicks to line up, line up kind of thing. And they need to be physically fairly close to each other. Yeah, exactly. So it's like four light years to the nearest star. We're not going to get there anytime soon with, with the modern methods. I mean, we're flat out getting to Mars. But we're giving it our best shot. Yeah, that's right. And actually soon uh, a spacecraft will be arriving at Pluto called the Horizon spacecraft. Oh, yes, we've be all- been looking forward to that. We'll be uh, orbiting Pluto and taking really detailed photographs of Pluto, which is called like a dwarf planet. Unfortunately, it's not a planet anymore. More. That's not unfortunate. Um, I'm fine no, with that. Yeah, it had it coming, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but you know, that's something to stay tuned for. But that that took like a decade to get out there, or so, something of that magnitude. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's got to pass through a fairly dense region of matter around Pluto as well. It thinks. Yeah, yeah, it's quite. I mean, there are like other debris out there, mm. and there's at the asteroid belt, and yeah, there's all sorts of things that. And you know what yeah. it's going to do? It's because it's got a big dish that it can send information back to Earth, and it's just going to raise it up in front of it like a Spartan warrior and just plow through. Yeah, yeah, this is Sparta. This is Horizons, and just charge on through. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, 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 that would be that would be ideal, but. Uh, Unfortunately, yeah, we, we lost all that Spartan knowledge and we can't we can't put that onto the spacecraft. 
It was it vanished in a blink. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us and filling in some of the the holes on dark matter with us, Doctor Griffin. No problems. Uh, it's been an absolute delight. Yeah. No worries. Anytime. Uh, if you have any questions about the universe and where we came from and things like that, I'll more than happy to help out. Oh, we are so going to take you up on that. Won't be able to answer uh, that exact to any great detail, but I love talking about it. So. <laughs> Thank you very much to Dr. Brendan Griffin. It's always nice to find someone who will offer to explain the universe to you when you need something answered. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. You have not been listening to Greg at smartenough.org. If you would like to follow us on Twitter, then you know where to go. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my personal account that Greg never lets me mention, you can follow me at, at DNABeast. Yeah, that's right. I've got a personal account. You should totally follow it so I can finally catch up to that guy. But if you'd like to follow us officially, you can jump on board to twitter.com slash se2kb or go to facebook slash se2kb. We would love it if you jumped onto iTunes and left us a nice review. There have been some lovely reviews left recently and they always fill me with delight. If you hear anything that has gone wrong in the podcast, please do send it to Greg or myself and we can address it in the walk of shame. Until then, as we always say... No, actually, Greg always does this. I did record in a uh, in a massive cavernous room recently with a weather scientist, and the bounce was streaming back at different rates to each microphone. And that editing that was an absolute right. nightmare. <laughs> sounded like the Great Oz or something like that. Pretty <laughs> much. Thank you very much for that, Brennan. No dramas. Sorry, I was speaking at a rate of knots. Oh, you're still much slower than Craig goes. Oh, really? <laughs> well, it would just be like a, like a tornado just feeding off each other. It'd be, be a singularity. It's probably for the best he wasn't here. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, you didn't.